Welcome to Scintillations, the podcast where we explore hot takes on the business of branding, consumers, and culture. Each week, we talk to the top minds from businesses shaping tomorrow, cultural thought leaders, and people with an eye out for what's next. Whether you're a marketing professional, entrepreneur, or simply curious about the forces shaping the world of consumer business, we've got you covered. From the latest trends in consumer behavior, to the cutting-edge strategies used by the world's top brands, we'll unpack it all, giving you the insights you'll need to stay ahead of the game. So, join us for scintillating conversations that will help you navigate the ever-changing landscape of modern business, including developments in artificial intelligence tools, like this voiceover. And now, your host, award-winning brand builder, Erica First. Good morning, Rebecca. Thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk about emerging tech things, my favorite. Awesome. Why don't we get started by you telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Okay. So who am I? I I am an innovation advisor. What I say that that means is basically I help guide brands and programs and people people into the next thing that's happening. And right now it's a big emphasis on emerging tech. I started my career doing media production and then moved into early days experiential marketing. And one of the programs I work with is the Future of Food. It's a deep space food challenge with NASA. So thinking through what does the future of food look like? And then I take that work across to industries. What does the future of the beauty industry look like? What does the future of education look like? Using now anchoring with AI and emerging tech and kind of how are we going to start seeing shifts across these different industries? So awesome. Sounds super interesting. It's very fun because also right now we're creating it. Yes. A fun time to not just be talking about it, but also actively be a part of making it possible. So today we we're going to talk about how the beauty industry is being shaped by AI. And so I'll just ask you that question flat out. How is the beauty industry being shaped by AI? I think it's it's two different buckets. There are going to be a lot of things we don't even know yet. I'll say that up front. We don't know how it's going to shape it. But right now, there are two things happening. One is we're seeing from a product standpoint and a brand standpoint, How are brands using AI? What are they leaning into? And that is a lot of data-heavy emphasis. So brands can, for example, collect a lot of data and then through using AI technology, customize their product in rapid time to their consumer, which is something that really hasn't been available in mass quantity before. You could create who the main audience segments are, and then try to create products that attach to who's going to sell the most or who's going to buy the most. But now with AI, they can really, there's customization happening. So data is a big part of that. And I think we're going to just see, even as things move to have digital presences, like virtual retail is, is shifting and AR and having makeup trials and you can you can try it on. So it's this combination of data and then the technology being able to actually try out the product in advance. Those are kind of like some of the fun things I think are happening. The actual consumer product relationship 
But then over here, and I think it's very much part of the beauty personal care industry is all of this that's emerging with beauty filters and AI technology with the TikTok filter that was um, the glamour filter. I mean, so I think I think there's this is really interesting how brands are connecting with consumers and that that's kind of living over here. And then it's like, well, what are our what is going to happen with the, through these filters? Because already we've seen just in the last couple of years how it's impacting self-image, cosmetic surgeries, people feeling like they need to adapt to this perfected version of themselves that is made through technology. So I think that is going to greatly impact the industry as well, because if there's a demand to have this certain look, then there are going to be products and services that are created to then fit the demand. So I think I think there are two big things happening at this point and more will evolve, I'm sure. But going to the filters thing, I purchased a lot of Fenty product because they have those AI filters. What shape are you? Here's your perfect contouring. And I probably would never have purchased those. I don't want to watch a thousand tutorials on how to do it, especially since everyone is 20. And so they have the filter and you can do it. And I ended up buying a a lot of products that I love and I would not have. So your point about the filters is quite interesting. It scares me a little, the second point, right? That the shaping face, I mean, I would use those beauty filters as an easy out. It's like, okay, I don't look good. Let me just pop one of these on and it's fine. You look good on camera. That's how it starts. But you, exactly. You are to the point where then you have like a dissociation between what you see in the mirror and what you see in your videos. And that, I have to be honest, scares me a little bit. Well, it is scary. I mean, also, so just to observe how quickly it happens and the and I'm not a psychologist, so I can't speak to the psychology behind it, but I'm a person using it. Even just when we look in the mirror, the whole concept around that, how you see me in person is different than how I, I see myself in the mirror. Yeah. So then when you see photos, I mean, this is, we've always, we've grown up with that where you see photos and you're like, is that what I look like? Yeah. Now it's amplified because it's happening all the time. It's through all of the apps. And if that becomes the norm and then it's removed, then what you actually are, you're like, wow, this, I was okay with it, but now I need to enhance myself. So let me go get this product or this product or whatever. So it's, it's an interesting thing. And I don't think it started negatively or maliciously. I think it's what evolves through just being humans and psychology and as someone who has worked in marketing and strategy and all the things from the media point of view and with the brands there's an opportunity for brands to really leverage this and sell more product and it's like i i don't blame them you know like there this is a business but there's something happening with everyone from a societal global perspective that is cause for concern. And I don't know how we stop it. And I'm not suggesting that, but I think it's worth noting that there's a shift happening and I don't see it slowing down because once it's attached to revenue streams and people making money, it becomes more complicated to to halt the process. Yeah, indeed. And it's interesting because I do think there's 
the nature of AI, which is to maximize existing information, tends towards personalization in one sense, but also homogenization in another, making everybody look the same in that filter. And then we all have to look the same. What usually happens culturally is every action has an equal and opposite reaction. And I'm seeing a lot of sort of cultural trends similar to 2005, 2006, when there was sort of an excess of the bling and, and that usually a counterculture or comes up from underneath that rejects all that. And part of that would be the de-influencing or kind of like the Gen Z whole chaos kind of aesthetic. But I think it's too early to tell if that's actually going to happen and if it's going to have any traction in the future. But I think it'll be interesting, as you were saying, we used to say as seen in a media property and now it could be as seen in this particular filter. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know, it's it, it's also interesting thinking about the future retail and a, AR and just being able to try on the products. If you were saying I bought the products because I, I could see how it looked on my face. I remember, and this is going to make me a little dated, but I remember being in seventh grade when websites, brand websites started popping up. And it was really fun because this was web one where brands could connect with consumers, but it wasn't a dialogue. It was just me going to the site. So I remember so clearly going to Gap.com and what you could do on that website was nothing except pick a hand, your hand color. They had like four different shades. And then you could pick from their selection of nail polish and you could put it on your nails and see what it would look like. And I remember thinking that was so fun and then I was going to go to the mall the next day and get the gray, silver, chromatic, whatever nail polish. And it's interesting because that was a long time ago. And, it, and there was this period of time where I feel like that engagement on the beauty level with products didn't progress until nice. more recently as there was starting to be this future retail, having digital try-ons at the store. And now you can do it at home. And so... It's interesting that there's this time where nothing really happened. You would think that we would have been doing this a long time ago. It's not that complicated, right? right. We're trying on the product and seeing what I look like with this shade of, of lipstick on or blush. Or... So I think that's exciting from a consumer standpoint to be able to dive into the brand experience without being in the store. Um, but that being said, I, I think, I think there's something very interesting happening with the filters. Yeah. I think the potentials of what can be in the future are, um, it's kind of like contemplating the size of the universe. It's just a little, mm -hmm. it's too much to even try and wrap your head around. Um, but it puts us on a perpetual treadmill of insatisfaction because, as you said, it's like, well, what's next? What's next? What's next? What's next? Does it have to stop at some point or? I think this is like a, a physics question, right? Like if it stops, I think it's because it crashed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I, th I think that's that is an interesting point is we all operate being in the industry, I think. We know this, but we are the ones creating everything, right? And yeah. 
What I think is really interesting is we all look to this higher power to dictate the pace at which we evolve. There is no higher power. It is us. And uh, that became really clear to me over the last two years. I was I was pulled pretty early into Web3 conversations around emerging tech with like blockchain and NFTs. And I was the one teaching the CEOs and the head chief innovation officers of these big brands like, hey, here's what's happening. Here's what's possible. And that was a real awakening for me where was like, oh, they don't know. I, I know, but I'm not the one deciding the the path we are charting. And I think that's where everyone needs to take ownership on some level in how we are going to use the technology. And that's the thing. We fear what we don't know. And so people are freaking out about AI with good reason because it has the capacity, but they're not factoring in that. That's on us. How we we deal with it. How we educate it. Yeah. It's not, it's not taking over, you know, it's not like, oh no, we've unlocked the robots and they're coming, but it might happen in some capacity if we don't own our roles in having these conversations, getting it out there. That is really important to me is to have people understand, especially the, the group of professionals that are coming up, right? The the junior to mid-level people who in five to 10 years will be running departments and companies and all the things. And I feel like arming them with education now will help them be a part of the conversation now rather than just kind of flopping around pretending that people know what's happening. Yeah. Well, it'll certainly be interesting. One of the things that I fear with AI, and this is also just neurological, our creation and innovation and problem-solving abilities, intelligence, comes from difficulty, comes from having to solve the problem on your own, comes to hitting a wall and being like, what else can I do to make this happen? That that's how we form new associations, new synapses, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And if all of that is delegated to something else, if I can get through my entire day from morning until night where I don't have to solve a single problem for myself, um, then we lose the capacity to be creative. We lose the capacity to be forward thinking. And most of all, we lose the ability to be critical thinkers, which is to me, one of the most important things. It's the thing I see most at risk right now. That's interesting. I mean, I think if you take, if you take someone who has already gone through it, so let's say we have, right, we had to go through school, we had to write papers. I can prompt chat GPT very well because I went through that and right. I I had to write it. I don't think I need to be staring at a blank page, having writers block. Like to me, I'm happy to hand that over to chat GPT. But to your point, coming from having already experienced that process, knowing those skills and and taking it with me in how I interact with AI because I experienced that. I don't know what happens with the generation that never experiences that and only learns prompting. Right. I think to your point, yeah, it will be very different because they've never like we're like, oh, this is amazing. I don't have to have this this stuck block and I can prompt chat, chat GPT and yay, amazing. I feel relieved. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's a really interesting question. And that's where, you know, that's 
kind of emerging tech and education. So is it the right conversation to be like, we're just banning, banning it in schools? Or should we think about how we're teaching using it in yeah. applications? I, you know, it's a, it's a much larger conversation. And unfortunately, everything kind of happened very quickly that we as a society haven't really put up markers of boundaries. It's a little messy right now. Yeah, we let the horse out of the stable, but forgot to build the fence. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's go back to your first point that you talked, because obviously the second one we're not going to solve in this chat here. Talking about uh, personalization in beauty. And I've seen a lot of new brands coming up and doing this skincare where you talk specifically about the challenges that you have. And it will spit out a custom-made uh, yeah. formula for you. Um, now, I am a skeptic at heart. And in order to know that I have found the right thing, I like to poke holes in everything. So as a consumer, my first thing is, how would I ever know, right? How would I ever know that they put the same thing for everybody in there and this isn't just a little gimmick? Hmm. I mean, I guess you wouldn't really know but but by that logic you know if you're picking up a dandruff shampoo maybe you don't really know that it actually helps with any of those things or the pm a pm lotion versus an am i mean i don't know i don't know how well that that's actually interesting i wonder if ai linked with blockchain would then maybe there's some kind of verification process that happens that's embedded in the product that then you're receiving that and you know that it was processed in this way. I mean, when things become more automated, you could get a verification process, right? So it's not actually in the brand's best interest to deceive the consumer. Right. Um, And I think, you know, you say, and yet we have an Olaplex situation. Dancing, it doesn't happen. <laughs> the best interest. Because uh, ultimately, they want to sell products, right? So with AI, it is interesting. At first, we had a few shades of skin tone. And then you could have maybe like, oh, I have sensitive skin. So now this. So what might happen, which is interesting, is maybe instead of there being so many different brand startups and solving for different things, maybe the bigger brands are able to actually be a one-stop shop. So we, what we might see is kind of what happened with the media industry in the 20s, right? The Hollywood thing where one company owned the actors, the distribution. Right. And it might, beauty companies might become that because there's no, there won't be a need for a new company to spin off if the capabilities are within this company that already has money consumers you know everything's already locked and loaded right but i think it's very interesting to say i have these allergies i'm this skin tone this is my lifestyle i live in a cold climate so my skin tends to be more prone to being dry you know all of these things that you really don't get to put into the process when you buy products now because there are only so many products so Maybe you get one thing or not the other, but if it could be fully customized on 20 points of differentiation, it's actually very interesting, I think. Yeah, because I also, one of the things I also 
don't see yet is how it's profitable because obviously the reason why these companies make a lot of money is economy of scale they get one product they get to sell as much of it if you have to make individual formulas for all 200,000 1 million of your clients uh, that is a very inefficient factory line I don't know how the supply chain works exactly I think it can probably be done in a way that is more effective and and maybe it's there are five categories, you pick which one of the five, and it's just a matter of combining the formulas. So that's the really big question is, if you get data, what do you do with it? So with this conversation around beauty, you have all the data, you know what my coloring is and what I'm prone to, whatever, whatever. Then what? That's going to feed me the same thing I've already bought. It's kind of like, oh, you know what I can't stand? If I buy a white chair, then Amazon's like, hey, do you want to buy these white chairs? I'm like, no, I just bought a white chair. You know I bought a white chair. Why are you sending it to yeah, me? I've never understood how that could be the biggest company on the planet, and it cannot figure out that retargeting. I literally just bought it. You know that because you, you know I bought it. I bought it from you. I think that that's the shift, right? Like that's what will be happening is as they get better with the data, it will get more customized and and less annoying. It will just become part of life. I wonder if they start doing something where they get, they collect all the data of the people that they have and they develop a product based on that. Oh, we think these people have this in common. So let's direct that. And then it gets pushed specifically to that kind of marketing. I would, I think that's already happening. I mean, in 2016, I was working with Procter and Gamble and they had this really interesting technology that they had had patented for a decade. They weren't doing anything with it. And it was this little felt square, basically dehydrated soap. So just like this little tiny thing instead of think about laundry detergent. And so Remember, it was dry crystals and then it was liquid and then it was the pods. And so this would have been the next iteration on that that path of innovation. And they had this and they were like, we can put any soap in it. We can do shampoo, shaving cream, home care, personal care. I mean, they had 20 different SKU options for the same technology. And they were like, we don't know what to do and we don't know which to launch first and how do we do this? And so we ended up using crowdfunding as a way to, to validate or invalidate different right. products. They didn't need the money. It wasn't a crowdfunding play for fund our project. It was right. willing to put transactional validation against this product. And so it was a fascinating experience to see which categories people were like, yeah, that actually, I'm, Yes. So I do think brands are looking at that and crafting the direction of their products based on demand. But sometimes I think they also put things out there and they flop. <laughs> so because there are so many brands now, Procter & Gamble <clears throat> could, have could just for year decades put something out there. It doesn't make it fine. No big deal. Put it on the shelf. People will buy it. Now with startups and just so many other brands in the space and competitors that these bigger legacy brands are having to be a little bit more intentional with what they deliver because I don't have to go to L'Oreal or Estee Lauder. Right. I can go to, you know, Glossier. Yeah. It's just, there are so many different options now. So I think it'll be really interesting to see how brands use this technology. 
Okay. So uh, Rebecca, where can people find out more about you and what you do and working with you? Well, they can find me on LinkedIn or they can follow me on Instagram at Rebecca Batterman. I'm actually developing out a number of courses that are for non-technical courses. So understanding AI across different industries, having conversations like this, arming people with really just understanding what is happening and how are different industries being impacted. So if anyone is interested in learning more, find me and soon there'll be a lot of information about that. Awesome. I, I definitely will check well, I'll it send out. It to you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much again for being here. This is super interesting. Yeah. And then this was really fun. I, I like that we've had this conversation. It's, it's exciting. Awesome. Well, fun. Thanks again. Thank you. Talk soon.